It's time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, joining us as always. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks very much for having me. The, uh, the, wheel, the wheels of justice just keep on turning, you know. Indeed, and we need them to turn in a very efficient manner as much as possible these days, let me tell you. Um, speaking of the wheels of justice, while litigation may be a way to satisfactorily solve many problems, it does actually have its limits in terms of what sort of losses may be recovered, particularly losses arising from illegal activity, and that's on the agenda this week. Yes, indeed. Um, and I think it's quite an interesting fact pattern and case, and it deals with that issue uh, uh, and some others that I think are uh, relevant to people's uh, day-to-day uh, lives and dealings. So a good one to talk about. Uh, this particular case uh, is out of Burnaby, uh, and it involved a fellow, Mr. Sun, uh, who entered into an agreement to lease, a, uh, I think it was an apartment there, um, and the uh, lease was for an amount of $3,600 per month. So we entered, signed this agreement, uh, and things got interesting because the uh, it was clear that Mr. Sun's intention was to uh, lease this uh, property uh, and then proceed to put it up on Airbnb and Expedia and various other sites uh, as a short-term rental. Uh, and in fact, that was specified uh, in the agreement uh, to rent this property. So that wasn't a mystery to anyone. Uh, this fellow apparently had a good business going doing this. He had a number of properties he was doing that with. Um, and the, the first interesting uh, bit of information here is the uh, amount of money that he began quickly generating uh, from this uh, property that he was paying $3,600 a month to rent from the owners um, in a, he started doing that in January of 2019, and by April, uh, from Airbnb alone, it looked like he received a little over $9,300. Uh, he also had it listed on Bookings.com and Expedia and various other places. So he was doing very well with this uh, Airbnb uh, business. Uh-huh. Now, the problem uh, is that you're not allowed to run an Airbnb business in that way uh, in Burnaby. So it's a similar circumstance to what we've got going on in uh, Victoria, potentially, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and then what happened is, I guess, the uh, city there got wind of what was going on um, and sent a letter to the owners of the property saying, hey, you better stop running an Airbnb out of your property here or you're going to be subject to fines. Uh, and so that caused the uh, owner of the property to go to the fellow who had rented it and said, "Look, you've got to stop this, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not permitted." Yeah. Uh, and eventually, the fellow who had rented it and was putting it up on Airbnb eventually relented and agreed to end the uh, rental of it. But he then sued <laughs> for what happened, mm-hmm. claiming that hey, they shouldn't have ended this uh, rental. Uh, it was very lucrative, and so he was trying to get compensation for what he would have made had he been allowed to keep renting it out on Airbnb. Uh-huh. Now, here are some of the interesting problems that arose. The first one is this principle. Uh-huh. You, you can't go to court and sue to recover damages for any legal operation. For example, if you're a drug dealer selling fentanyl to people and somebody doesn't pay for the fentanyl you duly delivered to them, you can't go off to small claims court and say, well, I'd like to sue you for the, you know, $200 you owe me for the fentanyl. Yes. Or it's not in the business of enforcing <laughs> illegal contracts. I was right? going to say, because that would be enjoining someone to commit an offense by, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it yep. would be a pretty outrageous state of affairs if you had uh, a court doing this kind of thing. So yes. courts are not uh, required to enforce illegal contracts. And even where neither party is relying on that, 
um, the court is still entitled to say, sorry, I'm not enforcing your fentanyl sale agreement or indeed uh, your illegal Airbnb operation contract. Yes. Uh, and so as a result of that, um, the uh, contract was, the, there was uh, no successful claim uh, by Mr. Sun for the money he lost being unable to um, illegally rent out this property as an Airbnb. Um, and so that's an important principle for people to be aware of because it can have a whole range of possible uh, implications, including things like if somebody enters into a contract to pay cash for something to happen so as to avoid tax, for example, uh-huh. uh, that would be an illegal contract. You may not be in a position to enforce that. So that's something people should be uh, keenly aware of um, if they're entering into uh, agreements that aren't uh, lawful. Uh, there was another concept dealt with in the case that I think is important to comment on because yes. I, I think there can be a, a broad misunderstanding about how this, this idea works. Um, and uh, Mr. Sun, the fellow who had rented out this apartment, rented out this property to put up an Airbnb, he claimed that look, when I signed off to end the uh, rental, I did so under duress. So he said, you know, that shouldn't be recognized. You know, I, I felt like I had no choice but to agree to terminate this thing. You know, the owners wrote to him and said, look, the city's going to fine us. You have to stop this. And eventually he agreed to stop the rental agreement. But then when he showed up in court, he said, well, that was made under duress. I shouldn't be bound by that. Uh, the court took some time to clarify what duress means. And I think this is also important for people to know about. Yes. Duress requires more than just a person feeling some compulsion to agree to something, right? Or indeed, even an inequality of bargaining power. Those things aren't going to make out dress and get you out of uh, what you've agreed to do. In order to rise to uh, the standard of duress, which would get you out of having to comply with a contract, there needs to be, as I said, more than an inequality of bargaining power. There must be, and this is the language, coercion of the will of the contracting party, uh, which would involve things like um, exercising this, uh, using an unfair or um, differential bargaining position in a way that is unfair, excessive, or coercive. And so let's imagine an obvious circumstance. If somebody's, I don't know, dying of thirst on a desert island, and you say to them, look, if you'll agree to sign over your car to me, I'll give you this bottle of water. Hmm. Right, that's likely to rise to the issue of uh, level of well, that was just under duress, right? right. The person yeah. sort of agreed to the car for the bottle of water um, in a it was a unfair and excessive, coercive sort of arrangement. But that's not going to get you out of agreements where you sort of felt some pressure to do something, right? Yeah. As indeed the person here felt some pressure when it was pointed out to him, fines might arise, this might be illegal, right? You have to stop doing this. Yes, indeed, the person might have felt some pressure, but that doesn't get you to the level of duress where you can get out of uh, uh, performing what you've contractually agreed to. So the important principles here for people are uh, you're going to be stuck with what you agreed to, even if you felt some pressure to do it. Uh, And furthermore, uh, if what you're doing is just fundamentally unlawful, don't show up in court hoping that a a judge is going to enforce your uh, contract for drug sales or tax avoidance renovations or uh, indeed uh, a business like this that isn't uh, lawful. Uh, and so people should be aware of that and conduct themselves accordingly. Uh, once you're in the world of uh, you know, drug dealing or illegal conduct, you're going to be pretty well on your own if the person you've entered into an agreement with decides not to pay you or to uh, pay you for your drugs or kick you out of your uh, property being used in some 
uh, and lawful fashion. Which is unfortunately why we see so much violence arise as people seek to have other methods to induce persons to abide by agreements, etc. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, it, it'll be the the bold politician that suggests we ought to uh, reduce gun violence by permitting drug deals and prostitution agreements to be enforced in court. But, you know, maybe there's some practical <laughs> reason for it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I want to say that'll never happen, but I've learned not to say that. Yeah, but... ne- never say never, right? <laughs> don't, just don't wait for that specific performance on the prostitution contract. Oh, right? All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break here. Michael Mulligan, as he continues offering us the benefit of his analysis and insight, Uh, legally speaking on CFAX 1070 right after this. All right, back on the air here at CFAX 1070 as we continue with Legally Speaking. We will, after the break, be speaking with Dr. Jillian Hurst at Duke University about a new study on COVID-19 and what it does in terms of spreading with young children, i.e. school-age children. That's coming up after the break. But first, I want to dive back into a conversation here with Michael Mulligan. The Court of Appeal extending a class action against something called People's Trust Company, Michael. Yes, indeed. So uh, this is a a class action which started a few years ago as a result of a, uh, what I think is common ground, is a breach of uh, privacy is sort of the basics of it. And what happened is that uh, this company uh, had a uh, website that contained data including social insurance numbers, credit card applications, dates of birth, email addresses, and so forth which they stored in an unencrypted fashion on a server and then failed to install various updates and patches that uh, led to a cyber attack and all of this personal information being taken uh, from a cyber attack originating in the People's Republic of China. Oh, wow. Uh, So a bad state of affairs for the people that applied for credit cards through People's Trust. Uh, and so a class action arose from that. Uh-huh. And class actions uh, these days, what appear, the pattern essentially is that uh, the first step of a class action is to get the thing certified, which is to say persuading a judge that it's an appropriate case for there to be a class action yes. and setting out who would be in the class and what kind of issues would be common issues for all the people in the class and this kind of thing. Uh, and a great deal of the legal fighting uh, arises with respect to that decision about whether to certify a class action or not. Because if you're the people's trust company or some other large business that's being sued, if you can somehow prevent the class action from getting certified uh, and uh, put people in a position where the only way they could get some compensation would be to individually sue you in provincial court, small claims court or something, uh, basically won. Yeah. And so a great deal of effort is put into that. And so you see many of these cases winding up in the Court of Appeal as companies fight tooth and nail to prevent class actions from being certified. And that's what occurred in this particular case. Uh, and there were a couple of uh, issues which I think people would find uh, of interest in terms of how the Court of Appeal dealt with this. One of the issues surrounds the, the concept of a claim for a breach of privacy. Um, and in British Columbia, we do have an act called the Privacy Act, which permits a, a claim to be brought if somebody uh, willfully and without claim of right violates the privacy of somebody else, right, if somebody mm-hmm. does that. Uh, and there are various exceptions to it, including things like commenting on matters of public interest or fair comment on matters of public interest or consent. There are a variety of uh, elements there to it. But that doesn't neatly apply to the kind of circumstance that's alleged in this People's Trust Company case, because nobody thinks that People's Trust Company wanted the Chinese hackers to get access to their unencrypted database on their unupdated server. That just happened. 
right? Yeah. Uh, I'm using now the People's Trust Company. If you go to their website, uh, has a uh, right on the uh, homepage, they've got a link now to called Cool Moves to Protect Yourself from Fraud. They, they might have benefited from that a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. That's, no, that's an understatement. No, yeah, so nobody suggests they were, you know, willfully, intentionally doing it. It's just alleged they were careless about it. Okay. Um, and so one of the things which the uh, Court of Appeal comments on is that um, in B.C. we don't have a, a common law tort of breach of privacy, and they're saying, well, it's too bad that that wasn't argued again in the Court of Appeal, suggesting that that, that might be uh, revisited down the road. So that was an interesting commentary. The other thing which I think is um, uh, important to know in the case is that um, we've had a change in British Columbia in terms of how class actions are to be dealt with for people who don't live in British Columbia. Yes. Right? So, for example, you might have a company in B.C., a case brought here, but some of the people affected might live in somewhere else in Canada. Yeah. Um, and until um, a couple of years ago, the way that worked is that if you got a case certified, so a judge said, yes, there should be a class action, mm-hmm. those people outside of British Columbia would have to affirmatively take a step to join the class action. So you'd you know, put an ad in the newspaper or online, and you know, people who might have had their credit card data stolen you know, could choose to join it. But that's going to be only modestly effective, of course. Uh, and we've had a change in British Columbia, which I think is a positive one, that now permits opt-out certification for people who don't live in British Columbia. Uh, And so the other thing the Court of Appeal did here was say, look, this uh, case can go back to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, It should be certified. Um, And there can be an application made to change that um, opt-out certification to, or sorry, opt-in certification to an opt-out certification, which means that once the court certifies something as a class action and defines who would be in the class, like you know anyone who had their credit card data stolen from the uh, unencrypted web page server, that kind of thing, yes. would be in unless they chose to affirmatively opt out and say, no, no, I prefer to bring my own claim in small claims court or something, which would be virtually no one. Um, and so that's the other, I think, important takeaway here is that we've had this change. It happened in 2018 that allows cases to be certified in British Columbia and to include people that don't live in British Columbia on an opt-out basis so that they would be uh, more likely to be captured and potentially get some compensation uh, if the case proceeds. Um, The other thing, which is uh, uh, by way of how these things in fact play out, is that once their companies have exhausted their efforts to try to avoid a case being certified, there's then a much higher probability that the case will settle uh, once it's clear that, yep, the thing will be allowed to go ahead. Much of the fighting, uh, seems to, legal fighting, seems to occur uh, in an effort to stop things from being certified to begin with. So the People's Trust Company, um, you know, uh, good to know that they've uh, learned their lesson about updating their server and perhaps they're reading their own helpful information on their webpage about how not to be a victim of fraud. Absolutely. You and I, Michael, in the past have discussed a number of times the matter of how it is fairly decided what members of the judiciary should be paid in exchange for their services presiding over British Columbia's courts. We believe very strongly in the separation of the judiciary and the legislative branch. However, at the end of the day, someone has to make an approval somewhere as to how much judges are paid. What is the status of that issue? Never-ending would be the status okay. of the issue. Okay, all right. <laughs> and, 
and and extremely disappointing, I must say, as somebody sort of watching it. We have the, and you're you're exactly right, and we've talked about this. The judges need to be independent from the other branches of government. They're often called upon to make decisions involving the other branches of government, and you do not want to be. Uh, somebody who's uh, you know suing the government, for example, in court or being prosecuted by the government, and have the judge who's deciding your case engaged in a salary negotiation with the other party that you're having a dispute with. Precisely, it's not it's not acceptable. Precisely, right? yes. And you would think that would be just so obvious to everyone involved, but um, well, we have a process in place that's supposed to set the salaries in terms of employment of judges, which is a an independent commission, which was created by legislation, and it would look at a variety of things like what are judges paid in other provinces? You know, what would senior lawyers be paid? You know, what's happening with other members of the government? This kind of thing. And then come up with a a suggested compensation uh, for judges every few years. And the way that works is that the report of that independent commission is supposed to be tabled in the legislature because ultimately the legislature is responsible for spending public money, right? The way we've uh, created this is that we haven't delegated to the commission the authority to just set the terms of employment. That might be preferable, I must say, going forward. But we've instead, uh, we have this report tabled in the legislature and then a decision made about whether to do what's been recommended or to tinker with it. And very unfortunately, in British Columbia and indeed in some other provinces, the government of the day just can't resist tinkering <laughs> with what has uh, been proposed. And it's been going on for years. And the most recent decision just came out on uh, August 27th. Um, and it is a uh, it was a uh, one of these recommendations made by the independent commission in 2016, suggesting that various changes be made to the terms of employment for provincial court judges. And as the uh, we now have this terribly unfortunate history in British Columbia, the attorney general of the day, the previous government, uh, didn't just say yes, fine, these independent independent commission, uh, I recommend you do this. They just couldn't resist, and so they decided to recommend to the legislature uh, that there be a change to the uh, compensation provided to, to judges, uh, different from what the Independent Commission had recommended. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, justification for that at the time was uh, to the effect that, oh, the commission didn't adequately take into consideration what was happening for compensation for other members of the public service. It was sort of a general critique of that. Well, that happened, uh, and what resulted then is what's happened repeatedly, and very unfortunately, uh, there is a uh, application for a review of that legislative decision. And where there's an application for a review, it goes to the B.C. Supreme Court, so judges that are not affected by the, um, the decision, right? They're not deciding their own salary like, frankly, would occur in other levels of government, right? Uh Politicians are generally setting their own salary, but judges aren't doing that. Um, And there can be a review of those legislative decisions about whether to follow the the recommendation of the independent commission. Yes. Uh, And where there is a review, um, one of the things that the judge doing the review has to look at is whether there was a reasonable factual foundation for the decision to depart from that independent recommendation. Um, it's sort of a, is it reasonable test? Uh, okay. And 
So we have this decision that just came out. It's a decision of the uh, Chief Justice Hinkson uh-huh. uh, that uh, found that the decision to tinker with the recommended compensation made by the legislature of British Columbia had no reasonable factual foundation. And I should say it's a, a pretty disconcerting day uh, when you look at these things, both from the perspective of the importance of judicial independence yes. and also when you read this reasoned decision that comes to the uh, ultimately comes to the conclusion uh, that what the legislature did wasn't reasonable and rational, right? And, and as an ordinary person, if I would be asked on balance, are the courts more reasonable than the politicians in the legislature? You know, I, I've watched the legislature all the time and it is not overly known for being reasonable. I'm just going to say that. No, and I, I've got to say, here's one of the things which we should take pride in in terms of our judicial system. One of the things, what you will get from a judicial decision are rational, reasoned decisions, yes. which have to be explained. And so, for example, when you look at this thing, the decision goes on, Chief Justice Inkson goes on for 36 pages, yes. carefully explaining the evidence and the background of the decision and why this isn't reasonable and how there wasn't an evidentiary foundation. Yes. And in contrast to that, what he was analyzing was a... Uh, speech by the then Attorney General in the legislature, and then a voice vote of everyone saying, aye, <laughs> and the thing being implemented. Um, and so it is just I should so, laugh, I'm sorry. It, it's so very disappointing that you wouldn't have anyone in the legislature at that time, anyone, saying, look, hold on a minute, what are we doing here, right? Yes. You know, this is an important principle. Um, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, dismissing a recommendation of one of these independent commissions unless there's a very good rational reason for doing so. Yes. Uh, and, you know, there's just bigger issues at play here uh, that just didn't seem to engage anyone there, which uh, is awfully disappointing uh, in terms of both the principle and on any day you have a conclusion from the Chief Justice that the legislature unanimously failed to act in a reasonable, rational way. Uh, surely that should be uh, a bare minimum expectation when we're uh, when decisions of this importance are being made. We can certainly so, hope. We certainly hope. Anyways, hopefully <laughs> in the future they'll just stop tinkering and do what the uh, and allow the what's supposed to be an independent process do what it's supposed to do and just get their fingers out of it. So we'll we'll wait and see. Michael Mulligan, a pleasure as always. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Take Have care. a great day. You too, Michael Mulligan. Every week during the second half of our second hour, legally speaking, on CFAX 1070.